We're going to be in Acts chapter 16, trying to pick up there where we left off. Acts chapter 16, we're going to read this text and we're going to begin to dig through it. We're going to read uh, all the way to verse, uh, excuse me, uh, almost to verse 24. We'll see if we get that far today, Uh, but we'll begin reading in verse 1 of Acts chapter 16. And uh, I'll give you kind of the recap of where we've been for the last couple weeks once we read it. Let it hopefully speak. Maybe we're not just reading God's word. Maybe we're not just digging into the Bible, but hopefully letting the Bible let God's word dig into us and begin to read us. So beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage voyage to Samothraki, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, 
These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into stocks. So this last week, and the week before that, we have been slowly, hopefully, methodically, and intentionally walking through the first few verses of Acts chapter 16. Hopefully my my goal has been that as some key terms and key characters and phrases emerge in Acts chapter 16, we've looked to see how they're explained elsewhere in the New Testament uh, that hopefully gives us an idea and a picture of what's really going on. Hopefully when, for example, we're introduced to different characters like a guy by the name of Timothy, and this is the first time he shows up, and hopefully you see that he has a very important relationship to the Apostle Paul. He has a very important role we'll see later in Ephesus. He has a very key role, and so if you flip through the New Testament and you get to a book, has his name on it, First and Second Timothy, you begin to see, okay, this is where these things come together. You see also a relationship between Paul and Timothy that's played out multiple times. You see it over and over and over again, Paul referring to the people in the, by the ways in which he's invested in them. So Timothy, for example, he refers to as a spiritual son, which lays out a kind of example for you and I as a family of people, a family of God brought together by Jesus Christ. In addition, though, we see some issues. We saw that a couple chapters ago that a big argument broke out in this movement about circumcision, about religious practices that were significant for people who had religious backgrounds. And the argument broke out that ultimately it's not by what you do that we have favor before God, but instead it's by what Jesus has done that we find favor before God. And so to say that you have to do something in order to be in good standing before God denies and undermines the good news that Jesus has done something on our behalf. So Acts chapter 15, we see a decision that the people came together and agreed upon that it's not by our religious practices, and this is good news for us, thank God, that we have favor before God. It's not by our discipline, but instead it's by God's mercy. And so a guy by the name of Timothy and Paul kind of could come along and say, forget this, I don't need to be baptized, or excuse me, I don't need to be circumcised. The symbol of God's favor for me is found in Jesus Christ and exercised in baptism, not circumcision. And we don't have to obey these customs to be in good standing before God. But in spite of knowing that, they still went through the practice so that they could win people over. So Paul circumcised Timothy, as we saw in the first few verses here. He didn't have to. It didn't earn him favor before God, but the radical nature of the gospel is that now that our heart has been transformed by this good news of Jesus, it transforms our perspective on the world. It changes the way that we see the world, and we're willing to lay down our own rights and privileges. We're willing to lay them down in order to to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And while there's a good deal of Christians in the world who are, are really good at at vocalizing their desire for their own rights and privileges, and there's kind of a big movement going on because after all, we who are Christians think we, we kind of got it figured out, but, but it seems that the church grows here in Acts chapter 16, not because they demanded their rights, but because they were willing to give up their rights. Mind you, that looks a lot like Jesus. So the gospel goes out. 
people come to hear this good news and where they're going to encourage these churches with this good news that it's not by our religious practices that we find favor before God, an amazing thing happens. So the Spirit of God directs the movement, the flow, and even the spread of the Gospel in such a way that lives are changed and people are liberated. So from verse 6, All the way to the end of our reading, I think we'll see two big particular movements that the Spirit of God directs the flow of the Gospel. The Spirit of God directs the path and the spread of the Gospel. But secondly, the Spirit of God directs the path and flow of the Gospel in such a way that lives are transformed and that people truly are liberated. So let's look at the first few verses here, beginning in verse 6. It says that they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So let's stop right there. This is weird, right? Because up to this point, we've had this mandate, beginning with Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 28, that you and I, once we have seen this good work of Jesus on our behalf, we share it. And we follow Jesus in such a way. We are a disciple of Jesus in such a way that others come along with us. This good news of what Jesus has done for us is too good to keep a secret. And Jesus says, now take what you know, take what you've learned from me, take the lifestyle and and the faith that I've given to you and pass it on to the people around you. Make them disciples. Baptize them. Give them the symbol that Jesus has been buried on our behalf, and so are we. But He did not stay buried, and neither will we. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then teach them to obey. Teach them to walk in My footsteps just as You have done. And I'm going to be with you the whole way. In the beginning of Acts, this mandate Get some specifics. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to the people right before He ascends into heaven, okay, it's not for you to have all the answers to all the questions. It's not for you to know necessarily when I'm coming back, but it is for you to be witnesses. Remember, this good news is too good to keep a secret. Be a witness first in Jerusalem, first among the Jews, Jesus' people, but then to Judea, kind of the neighboring area. And if that isn't far enough, go to Samaria, the place where people speak different languages and it's full of people you don't really like. And if that isn't far enough, you take this good news to the ends of the world. And that's been the trajectory. Gospel goes out. People go, they share the gospel. They win the right to be heard, and when they win the right to be heard, the people's lives are changed, and a movement begins. A movement that spreads at some points by thousands of people in a single day. This movement gets so powerful that it begins to undermine the religious authorities, and they actually kill a guy by the name of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. It's a real movement. People's lives are changing. The world is starting to look different as a result. And along comes this first or two that we read here, that even though Jesus commanded them to go make disciples, even though He commanded them to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, the Holy Spirit, and even synonymously in verse 7, that Spirit is Jesus' Spirit, forbids them to go to Asia. It says when they came to Mysia, it says they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. 
This is interesting, but this is a really unique and maybe even troubling dynamic of the fact that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, directs the movement and the flow and the spread of the gospel. That apparently, not only is it that the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth, but apparently there is a timing in which the Holy Spirit also governs. God is not just sovereign over the where and how of you and I spreading this good news that's changed our lives, but God has also ordained the when. And there's a guiding principle here. Verse 8, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and then a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, and he was urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to us. The governing principle of the guidance of the Holy Spirit is found in verse 10. The governing principle is that they preached the gospel. So even though the Spirit seemed to, in some way that is somewhat nebulous and isn't fully articulated here, held them back and forbade them even from going in to this other place to share the gospel. The governing principle is not that they did not preach the gospel, it's that they went somewhere else to preach the gospel. Why do I say this? Because often it is easier for us to be really confident about the places we do not desire or do not want or do not have the ability to share the good news of Jesus. And we stop there. We have a great deal of confidence that we don't want to go there, that we're tempted to go there. I mean, did you catch the words there? It's, it's a really interesting turn of phrase. It says in verse 7, they came to Mysia, and it says they attempted to go into Bithynia. Literally, that, that word there is like they were tempted. They were, they were somehow like enticed. There was something in them that wanted to go and to share this good news, to deliver this good news, that God had done something that was life-changing. Not based on our religious practices, but based on His mercy in Jesus. They were tempted. Most people who call themselves Christians stop at this verse. Most, Christian, most people who would call themselves followers of Jesus, I say this, and the governing principle I outline here of preaching the gospel is very important because most people who call themselves a Christian stop here in verse 7. I really am tempted. I really feel like I ought to do something with this good thing Jesus has given me. Right? And this is the easiest thing to concede. Because if we believe it, in fact, if, you, if you're even entertaining the notion enough to be hanging out here and hear me speak loudly about it, then you obviously have your mind opened in some particular way that this is kind of good news. This is really cool. This is outstanding. And so it's easy to say, yeah, I'm tempted. I'm tempted almost to tell someone about this. I, I mean, there's something in me Jesus has done something in me that, that almost makes me want to live differently. Jesus has done something in me, and I feel it. I feel the tug. I feel like I'm supposed to do something about it. And the guiding principle is that the gospel goes somewhere else. And I labor this point because I fear that we have no vision to make it to verse 10. That we're content to say there's something else going on that's holding me back from sharing this good news, from living in such a way that the good news is evident, from speaking in such a way that 
the good news is explicit. And we just kind of stop right there. But notice, the Holy Spirit holds these people back, not so that they will not preach the gospel, but so that ultimately they will preach the gospel where the Holy Spirit is moving and working, where the Holy Spirit is opening hearts and minds and ears and eyes to the good news of Jesus. The governing principle is that the gospel goes out. And just like many other times in this passage, in this book, we see this kind of interplay between the will of human beings and the will of God. There's this thing that's going on in between the people and their desire and God and His desire. It's God's will that the good news goes to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And this is the point in the story where we're kind of in between Samaria and the ends of the earth. Did you catch the word Asia there? That's not the word Asia like we understand the word Asia, but instead that's kind of a a province of what we would call modern-day Turkey, in the western part of Turkey. And so at this point, we're beyond Samaria, and we're reaching past Samaria to the ends of the earth. Something's going on here. Something's moving. And this account is even spoken to us with kind of a breathtaking speed. It begins to sequence out the events very quickly as if to give us this impression that there's this irresistible sweep of events sweeping Paul back to Macedonia, sweeping him into this new area, almost out of his control. And there's interplay between what God wants for people to be witnesses to the end of the earth and then what these people want to go to a specific time, place, the particular approach. See, the Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives freedom from the law. You can look at Romans chapter 8. The Spirit gives us law from the, sin of de- from the law of sin and death. The Spirit has done something for us that the law cannot. The Holy Spirit has changed us in the way that a long list of rules cannot. It's in the Spirit that we walk. It's in the Spirit that we live. It's in the Spirit that our minds are set on spiritual things. And it's in and through the Spirit that we have real life, and real peace as opposed to death and conflict. And Paul and his companions have this conflict in them between where the Spirit wants them to go and where they want to go. And it's in this place that you and I are invited to live. Why is that important? Because we are really, really confident about all the places we're not supposed to go. We have a great deal of confidence when it comes to the leading of the Holy Spirit and a great deal of confidence when it comes to God's will, when it comes to things that are difficult, hard, and things we do not want to do in places we do not want to go. But it seems that the guiding principle is that our ultimate confidence is not in the places we do not go and the things that we do not do for God's will, but the things that we ought to do. For example, like we all know we're not supposed to move to Africa share the gospel in a difficult place, start an orphanage, and have a business in eastern Africa, right? We all know that, right? We're supposed to be in Sioux Falls. Like, we have confidence in that. Oh, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to do that because that's hard. That's dangerous. We know we're not supposed to go to Iraq and share the gospel there, right? Like, we're confident in that. There's nobody contemplating that, right? There's nobody, hopefully, I mean, maybe you are, maybe you're not, but a great majority of people are pretty confident that's not what they're supposed to do. They don't even fit into category of verse 7. Like, I'm really tempted to go and 
tell people of ISIS about the gospel. We're not even tempted to. And we're really confident. But I would just challenge you with this. Unless you are really confident about where God is calling you to share the gospel, unless you are really confident about where God is putting you to influence people for the sake of His kingdom and His glory and His name, then I might ask you to kind of reduce your confidence level about where you believe God is not calling you. So until we have real confidence about where we are supposed to go, how about we just kind of let go of our confidence in the places we know we're not supposed to go? I saw this, uh, it was really interesting. Oh man, I, I saw a guy uh, in a college ministry and I really enjoyed um, just kind of interacting and just kind of watching this, this interaction between people. God, God started to work and this guy was like, um, you know, he's, he's raising money for a mission trip. He's wondering if he should go on this mission trip and it was in a, uh, in a difficult place and uh, in a closed area where you weren't allowed to go as, as a missionary. And he was like, man, I don't know if I should do this. I'm really praying about it. it's God's will. I'm praying about, you know, whether or not we should be doing this and, and I'm praying about how this will work out and praying if God will protect us. And, and the guy just goes, oh, really? So you're engaged, right? He's like, yeah, man, I'm going to graduate next year. And he goes, um, so, so how much prayer did you put into uh, deciding to date this girl? Well, not very much. So did you pray about whether or not you should take her out on a date? No. Well, did you pray about, you know, a, a great deal? Did you feel like God really is the one who opened the door for you to, to, to propose to this girl? He's like, no. Like, so let me get this straight. Here's a life-altering decision, and you're pretty confident in it because you haven't put any prayer in it, but you're pretty confident that, that that's what's supposed to happen. And yet here's a week of your life you're going to spend somewhere else, and now you've got problems with whether or not God's in it? And I... I overheard the conversation. It was really interesting because he was speaking to this immature college student, went right through his ear, out the other, and hit me square in the chest. Because it's easy to say no to where God is working. It's, isn't it? Isn't, it's easy to go, well, I don't know. I don't know if they're listening. I don't know if all, you know, they may, may make fun of me. I don't know if that's what we're supposed to do. And we live in verse 7 here where we're like, I think I should. I'm tempted. But we just live there. Statistically speaking, Less than one out of ten Christians in America will even invite someone to a church function. One out of ten of those people will ever talk to their coworkers about Jesus. If that exists here, and that means there's a sliver of us, we're not even a hundred people, less than one of you will get out of verse seven and make your way into verse ten. Let me compel you with this. Let me compel you. This is what's really exciting. Because I don't want to just guilt you into, you need to go do this. That isn't even what the Spirit did, right? The Spirit inspired Paul. He said that he had a vision. He had a dream. And and in this dream, he saw something amazing. He saw a person. And this person said, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then Paul saw the vision and says he immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So a couple different things here. The first one is that the way in which God calls us to love the people around us is for us to have a heart that is broken for those people just like God has. We look at this city the same way Jesus looks at Jerusalem and we say, instead of like, oh, you idiots, you don't get it. You should listen to me, I'm right. We say, woe to you. Woe to you. Man, by, it's only by the grace of God that that's not me. 
And the impetus, the motivation for sharing the gospel is not intellectual snobbery. Like, I get it and you don't. Sit there and listen while I tell you why Jesus is the answer and why you're wrong. Instead, the impetus for sharing the gospel is having a picture of a world that is broken and helpless and hopeless without Jesus. We look and we realize, man, this is dark. I have the light and it's only by God's grace that someone gave it to me. He says, come over the Macedonian help us in verse 9. And then their response to their cry for help was to go and preach the gospel to them. So here's the second thing you, you connect here. When he says help, Paul hears preach. Get that in your head, right? When, when they need help, what they really need is the good news of Jesus. This is something we've talked about as we lay out our vision as a church for mission and our convictions about mission. It is not our job to save the world. And so we do not want to engage in mission. We don't want to be on a mission in our own lives or in our own city or around the world. We don't want to go on mission trips as though we can save the world. It is not our job to save the world. It is our job to share with the world about the one who did. Get that in your head. It's not our mission to save the world. It's our mission to tell them about the one who has. So yes, go drill wells in Africa. Feed hungry, right? Help the homeless. Jesus says this, feed, uh, feed those who are hungry. Visit me when I'm in prison, right? All of these things, do these things. But if you don't give them ultimately the good news, then your helping is actually hurt. So we do those things, not because we're going to save the world, but because they give us an opportunity to share with them about the one who has. This radically changes the way we see it. Um, a good fire and brimstone preacher illustrated this for me in, in the 90s. He says, yeah, go give a homeless man a blanket and you'll keep him warm. But if you, get, if you forget to give him the gospel, then you've made him warm for eternity in the fire of hell. We have an ultimate goal. And this mission is to save. And so when we think help, we don't only think tangible, physical, visible needs but we ultimately attempt to meet those needs for the sake of preaching the gospel the holy spirit guides it the holy spirit opens the door my encouragement to you before we kind of move on to verse 11 my encouragement to you is if you're in this room and you're thinking man i don't i don't know how this feels when uh, i don't know what this is like but man i just encourage you this way if you're a believer if you if you've opened your eyes to this and some of you, even maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer. Man, you're always welcome to hang out with us. We, we love you. That We're here for you. Um, and if you're open, you're beginning to open your eyes on this, then we have something to celebrate here, don't we? Because at some point, the Spirit of God, for those of us who are now following Jesus and have been saved by His mercy, at some point, the Spirit of God did not hold someone else back, but instead the Spirit of God moved so that someone invested in you enough to tell you this good news. Unless you're the person that stumbled upon a Bible and opened it up, heard the good news, and believed as a result, you still have to thank somebody for putting that Bible there. You still have to thank someone for printing it and paying for it. But for the rest of us, I think we can probably think about somebody who shared this good news with us. Be encouraged. This is working. God is doing this. He's doing this among us. And the evidence of it is that you and I are here. The Spirit is guiding the flow of the gospel such that our confidence becomes rock solid. It becomes 
unshakable in the fact that He, God, is using us to share this good news with the world. Our confidence isn't just in what we think we should not do, but it's also in what we ought to do. It's rooted in our love for people, knowing that you have to hate someone not to share this good news with them. So they set sail in verse 11. They set sail to Troas. The gospel and the flow of the gospel is is moved around by the Holy Spirit. Thank God they didn't get stuck in verse 7 where they just thought, well, I think we should go somewhere because after all, remember, as we read for about eight weeks in the book of Colossians a few months ago, the gospel gets to Asia. Right? The gospel gets to Asia. The Holy Spirit by no means says don't ever go to Asia. The Holy Spirit instead guides them to go to Macedonia. The gospel gets to Asia. In fact, to the far side of Asia, to the, to the town of Colossae in which we found our letter to the Colossians and spent a few weeks. The gospel gets there. The Spirit guides it, moves and shakes through the power of the gospel, including all the way to a place called Philippi. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothraki. Now, this is a weird word, I know. The sea there is actually a kappa. Macedonia should actually be Macedonia, but for some reason we say Macedonia. Samothrace should actually be Samothrake. It's a sea, it's a cat. I don't know why that is. Just It's an interesting word. I like saying it, right? This is a different place. I point that out so that you realize they're heading into Greece at this point. That is a, as I say it, that should sound really Greek to you, right? That's a They are leaving Asia. They are leaving and they are entering into Europe. And this is the first account of the gospel making its way into Europe, into Greece. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothraki and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So now we're even getting close to Italy, to Rome the ultimate trajectory of the book of Acts, a place we'll find ourselves pretty quickly. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Now remember the goal. They circumcised Timothy so that they could continue their uh, routine. When they go into a city with the gospel, the first place they go was to the synagogue. And they knew they were around people who were religious, who were Jewish people, and they would start in the synagogue because, after all, Paul was a pretty important Jewish leader, pretty important Jewish teacher. He was of the teaching of Gamaliel, one of the key teachers in the Jewish world at this particular time. So the best place for him to start would be the place where they know who he is. And they would go into a synagogue, and he circumcised Timothy so that they could bring Timothy with them. And they make their way to the synagogue. But remember, we're getting away from Jerusalem at this point. We're, We're going way away. Right, so, so as we look to where they, they run off, the first missionary journey of Paul on this particular map circles about right here. This is what's known as modern-day Turkey, okay? Once you get past the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea, now we're over here. Um, we have Greece, Italy, and Rome are over here. And so we're just now breaking in to Europe. And the furthest they've gone up to this point is over here. They planted churches. Now, you can't see it probably, um, but up here we have Ephesus, Laodicea. Right in the middle somewhere would have been Colossae. And when he gets this vision from Antioch, the sending church, they go all the way past Derby to Lystra, where, remember where Timothy lives. Timothy's going to wind up an elder in Ephesus away from his parents. Another shout out to mom on Mother's Day and great moms and grandmas of Timothy. And they make their way all the way to Philippi up here. Get on a boat. And make a long journey 
as far away from Jerusalem as they've been. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Judea. Here's Samaria. Now we're in the ends of the earth. And they go all the way to Philippi. So why do I say that? Because this is the first time that the gospel makes its way into Europe. It goes way away. So the number of Jews, the number of synagogues that would have existed at this particular point are few and far between. Remember, one of the theories about Lystra is that there wasn't a synagogue there, and so that's why Timothy wasn't circumcised to begin with. There weren't enough Jews to have a synagogue. We know for a fact there's not a synagogue at this point in Philippi. They make their way all the way to Philippi, and they meet instead because there's not enough elders or leaders to have a synagogue. There is what is known as a place of prayer. And Paul goes to a group of women who had come together. There's a whole bunch of really cool stuff here, and I don't have time to unpack all of them. Evidently, not only was there not enough people, not enough Jews who weren't polytheistic but were monotheistic and believed that there is one God, a creator of all things, there wasn't even enough to have a synagogue. There wasn't even enough. And it may even be the case that there were no men who believed. Instead, there were women who were beginning to follow this Jewish law. They were beginning to seek God. I point that out because of a few things. The first teachers, the first Jewish leaders and teachers would not have likely spoken to a group of women. They would have spoken to a group of men who would have spoken that to the women in their community. Not Paul. Paul jumps in here and all I can tell you is this is like a modern day, this is like the equivalent of like a Beth Moore Bible study, right? This is like a women's Bible study. Did you catch what they're doing? He goes to the place of prayer outside the gate to the riverside. We suppose there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So the women got together. It says she was a worshiper of God. The women were getting together and they were worshiping God. So like Paul walks into like what would have to have been a modern day Bethmore Bible study and he begins to share this good news of Jesus. And God does something in verse 14. It says that Lydia was from the city of Thyatira and she was a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. And this is what God did. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then as a result, she was baptized. This is amazing. It's amazing because Paul's speaking to a woman. In this particular culture, that wouldn't have been it. It wouldn't have been the case, but you know that Luke is always pointing us to these really important women, right? The first people who knew that Jesus was not in the tomb were a couple of women, and God desires to, to, to reach these women. They're the first evangelists. They're the first ones to say that Jesus is not here. There's been these key women leaders that go along here, and it even becomes to this woman by the name of Lydia. Now get the picture of this girl Lydia, right? She apparently has two houses. She not only is from Thyatira and lives there, but she's doing business here. It says she's a seller of purple goods. Now I don't know the, the equivalent here, but she is like elite and successful in the fashion industry. Okay, so the purple dye that they're talking about here is extremely expensive. Now there weren't brand names in this particular time in the world, and so instead, what was really expensive wasn't really revealed by the name that was on it, but it was by the color. Purple dye was only made by specific kinds of unique shellfish and some other things, and so it was expensive and difficult to find. And that's why purple is typically the picture of royalty, because people who are royal are the only ones who can afford to wear it. They're the only ones who wear purple. They're the only ones who dress like kings because they are. And here comes this woman who apparently is highly successful 
in the world of fashion. She's got it together, right? Like, just get the picture. This woman has got it together. And even after uh, they, they meet her, even after they, they, they come in contact with her, it seems that um, she invites them back to their house and invites all of them to stay. Read between the lines there. She has a house big enough for this missionary team to stay with her. She's got it together. She's living the good life. She's religious. She's highly moral. She's highly successful and profitable in the area of fashion. She's a business owner. They're gathering together for prayer. She's successful. And yet she's not a believer in Jesus. We often think that the goal following Jesus is just to be religious and just to appear a certain way. But here's a woman who's got her act together. She's got the world figured out. And it's in her deep religiosity, it's in her deep discipline that the Lord opens her heart to hear this good news about Jesus. So you and I know Lydia's around us, right? We know these people. Highly religious. And thank God, out of their religiosity, out of their self-righteousness, God saves them. And God calls them to himself. To the point that there, it says she's even overwhelmed and she begins to share her gift of hospitality. But then verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This is not uncommon. Remember that many times the demons that possessed people who surrounded Jesus, began to cry out that Jesus was the Lord, that Jesus was the coming king. In fact, Jesus silenced a group of them one time when there's a legion of demons and this, this particular man, and they said, oh, son of man, have you, know, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? And so the demons knew that Jesus had authority. They weren't shocked that Jesus had come to torment them and torture them. It's just really ironic. They were just shocked that he came early, right? Have you, oh, we know we're going to get a beating, but did you show up early? So this is common for for demons to recognize the good news and see the power of the good news and recognize the power in the name of Jesus. And so they, this demon cries out through this girl and recognizes them in such a way, but it's not in such a way that's encouraging. In fact, it's a way that seems to be mocking or annoying. Verse 17, she followed Paul crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed you the way of salvation. And this she kept on doing for many days and Paul, and again, I always love the real, this is real life, right? This is authentic people, isn't it? Paul, who became greatly annoyed. What a polite way to say that. Greatly annoyed. He turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And the power of the name of Jesus changes her so greatly that her owners, it says in verse 19, realized that their hope of profiting off of this slave girl was gone. And so they began to take it out on Paul and Silas. They drug them in the marketplace before the rulers and before the magistrates, and then they demanded that they were beaten. So you got Lydia. She's got her life together, highly moral, high, highly religious. And in that religiosity, God calls her out and calls him to himself, calls her to himself, changes her heart. And then you've got this girl who is a slave girl, doesn't even get a name. And she's the opposite. Some of you are Lydia, but some of us, 
our slave girl. Victimized. Annoying to most people who would call themselves believers. She doesn't have any of the power that Lydia has. She doesn't have any of the influence, any of the wealth. Doesn't have any of those things. And yet Jesus enters that space as well. And the first women's liberation movement takes root, beginning in verse 11. With the liberation of a woman who had her life together, was living the good life, and the liberation of a woman from a demon that held her captive. Now most people assume that she became a part of the church in Philippi. The reason they do that typically is that in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus kind of gives this diatribe about, about unclean spirits. In verse 43, he says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through a place seeking rest, but it finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they entered and dwell there. And then the last state of that person who was possessed by a deacon, is act, a demon, is actually possessed by a deacon. That's hilarious. <laughs> Freudian slip. Freudian slip. I won't edit that one out. The la- the, so that the last state of a person who is possessed by a demon is actually worse than the first. And so this is meant to be a picture here. Her life has changed, and we have to assume no demons came back, but when, in the power of Jesus, when Paul commands this demon to leave, her life has changed. And so it's assumed that she and Lydia are a part of this church plant in Philippi. And for the person who is rel- religious and moral, Jesus sets them free. And for the person that is a victim, Jesus sets them free. Lydia, who is well put together, and then this slave girl who's been taken advantage of her, her entire life, Jesus steps and takes hold and gives freedom to both. So I want to kind of wrap up. A few weeks ago I was pretty rough on guys, but I want to apply this maybe just to the state of women, um, maybe just to the state of, um, of what this should look like for us. The gospel goes out and it changes lives regardless of their state, regardless of where you think you are, highly moral, highly religious, or even highly rebellious, and maybe a victim. Maybe you've got your act together. Maybe you're mistreated and abused like this person. And Jesus comes to give freedom. And notice what Jesus does in each particular case. We would like to think that Jesus came into the instance of the slave girl, changed her life, and made her like Lydia. That's how we tend to judge things. We tend to wish that people, instead of getting saved and transformed by Jesus, we wish they would just get religious. We wish they would just be less annoying. We wish they would just get their act together. But I want to bring out a resource that I've shared with a couple of you. This is uh, uh, Give Them Grace. It's a book we gave to our um, families, and I want to hold you accountable to reading it because this is really important. Um, Ultimately, this is what uh, Michael Horton says. It says, What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also a broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, the city where Barnhouse was pastoring, all of the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, the streets would be pristine. This is a Satan who was in charge. They would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at one another. There would be no swearing. 
The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And yet the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. He says if Satan were really in charge, then he would make everything clean and perfect, but he would remove Jesus from the picture. This is scary. Mainly because what Barnhouse was describing is what most of us want for our children. We wish, with Jesus or no Jesus, we just want them to obey. We want them to be polite. We want them to not curse or look at pornography. We want them to get good jobs. We want them to marry a nice person. And not get caught up on all the really bad stuff that would give them a really reputation. And all the while, never focusing on that their ultimate need is to be saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ. We're tempted to say to this slave girl, boy, I wish you could be more like Lydia. I wish you could get your act together. And what happens to her? Apparently her ultimate enemy, apparently the thing that is hurting her the most is not her place in society, but it is her place before God. This is tough. Because we see a picture here of just a radical difference and radical opposites in women. A a woman who's got it all together and a woman who is a victim. I would say if this were a modern-day parable, um, the the contrast would be the difference between the career-minded woman and the stay-at-home mom. So women, I I was brutal to the men a couple of weeks ago because I think we were pretty weak, but let me be brutal with you. I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender. Women, you're really tough on each other. It's like junior high all over again. And there's really extremes. And you women look down on each other in a really unhelpful way. And it's hard to watch. I'm particularly sensitive to this because I'm kind of connected to a bunch of women in my house at this particular point in my life. And I watch women do this. And so the, so the career-minded, successful woman, the Lydia, if you will, looks down on the people who have invested in something else. And, and, the, and the mom who's, who's family-minded and home-minded looks down on, on the poor, oppressed career-minded woman and it seems in the world in our culture men have a lot more freedom to be somewhere in between there's a lot of rungs on the ladder but it seems like women are really black and white and i want to encourage you women on both sides have invested differently and i want you to see one another in the same way that luke tells us about these women the key characteristic for the woman who was career-minded, two houses, big business in the area of fashion. Key interest was that she was far from God and needed to be brought near in Jesus. And the key issue for the woman who was mistreated, a woman who had been a victim her whole life, was not that she was set free from slavery. We never have a record of that. But ultimately that she was set free from the bondage of sin and death by the power of Jesus Christ. And if I could just offer something to you, women, would you begin to see other women Men, let's do the same thing. Let's see other women like Luke sees women here, that their greatest need is for the love of Jesus. Greatest need is to see their identity through the eyes of God. You are not, you are not worthy because you're in the fashion industry and you look like you're put together. You're not even worthy because you've overcome great things. You're not worthy by what you do. I want to encourage you, don't listen to them. That's what that, that would annoy Paul, right? Instead, you are worthy because God has laid down the life of His own Son to purchase you for Himself. And every magazine and every catty little junior high girl conversation that goes on till the day you die ought to go in one ear and out the other. And you ought to hear that your value is in Jesus. Please hear this. We are not good at this. 
The best example I think you'll see in the next couple of years, Hillary Clinton. Politically, you could hate her or love her. I don't care. What I'd want you to see is the way we treat a woman versus a man. And yet here's this beautiful picture of a man and woman's greatest need is to be saved by Jesus, to be liberated, not by their circumstances, but be liberated by the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, would we be the church and the group of people who desire that for one another. Oh, would we be the group of people that don't settle for just hoping that people turn out like Lydia and get their life together, but we would be the people who look around and know that our greatest need is for the gospel to change our lives and give us new life. The Holy Spirit is opening up the door and moving the flow of the gospel around us. And when it hits, it changes us and it liberates us from our deepest and darkest need. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, We thank you for calling us out of darkness, drawing us into a marvelous light. We thank you that you are willing to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. God, there's some of us in this room, we've got it all together. We've got, man, we've got it figured out. Uh, We've got our act together. We've got our life in order. We are disciplined. And we need to hear this good news that none of those things hold a candle to what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. There's some of us that are victims. There's some of us, uh, some of us that our life has been miserable. Our life has been treacherous, and we've endured more pain than most people will ever see in their lifetime. Would you show us that you too want to set us free from the powers that are over us, the powers of darkness that rule over us? So help us to see that our greatest need is not to get our act together, be religious, moral people. In fact, that might be the greatest distraction from the good news of Jesus. But help us to see that our ultimate need is that you have loved us, you have sent your son to save us, and there was not a single moment in the history of the world where you wanted to change your mind. And beginning now, to the end of the world, you will never forsake us, you'll never forget us. In Jesus' name, amen.